Popular music. Does anyone even really keep up with it anymore? I don't, but I did. Today, music on the third episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. Broadcasting to you from Santa Rosa, California, by way of the Icy Robots Radio Network, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, prepare to witness the strength of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast. Hey everybody, it is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, here with episode number three of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. Coming to you from my home in beautiful Santa Rosa, California, it is a stormy January day here in the year 2017. First podcast of the new year, I'm just sipping on a mug of bone broth here and getting ready to talk to all of you out there in podcast land. And I just want to say before we get into the heart of today's show, since I brought it up on the intro there, uh, this bone broth stuff, man, this is the breakfast of champions. I'm not a big breakfast guy. I'll go out to eat breakfast now and again, and I do enjoy that, but just day to day around the house, I'm more of a two cups of coffee and wondering why I feel like I'm going to pass out at 11 a.m. type of fellow. So the fact that I've managed to find this liquid that's easy to heat up, easy to consume, and I feel like I ate something, I am all in on this stuff, man. I'm loving it. Uh, I came to bone broth by the way of it being January right now, just coming off the uh, tail end of the holiday season here at Sensational Manor. And uh, Ms. Sensational and myself are kind of trying to do a detox health kick here to start off the new year because we we hit it pretty hard with the overindulgence over the holidays. And uh, and typically I, I, I'm not the biggest, um, uh, how, what would you call it, like fitness self body image improvement guy. I hate all that stuff. It's such a, such gimmickry and such a, such a carny industry, just convincing people they need to go around ripped with a six pack. Come on, man. Like, unless you're like a pro wrestler or an MMA fighter or something, I'm just not seeing it. Um, but we're just kind of dipping one little toe in that world, um, just to avoid feeling like we're going to keel over going into 2017 here. And so far, so far it's paying dividends and Hey, I found a new breakfast out of the whole whole deal. So, um, which I I think it's an affectation I'm going to carry on into my normal life once this wretched sort of cleansing period is over. And speaking of the holiday season, we had a pretty good one over here at Sensational Manor. Myself, uh, my wife, Ms. Sensational, and our two daughters, Miss One, age 11, and Miss Two, age 8. We just kind of kicked back and had some family time, uh, hosted our... um, usually annual uh, Christmas party here at the manor where we have some friends over in the evening um, after everyone's kind of done with their extended family stuff for the day. Um, but I, I got to tell you, the holidays, I on one hand, I love the holiday season. On the other hand, it's a bit rough for me because it typically involves more and higher stakes socializing than I normally do in my normal day-to-day and which is fine. I like seeing people and I have a good time, but I inevitably, I have this problem where I always, um, have this kind of post socializing hangover. I always feel like, uh, after I hang out with people that I, I pissed everybody off or I acted totally out of control and outlandish and especially holidays you throw in, I, I don't want to paint the picture that I'm some major, uh, um, alcohol user or something, but I, yeah, I like to knock back a few here and there and especially during the holiday season. So you add that to the mix and the anxiety levels are high and, uh, 
you know, um, Ms. S is off work for a week. So we're staying up way later than we normally do night after night after night, drinking more than we normally do. So, so by the end, I'm a little wrung out and I'm, I'm glad to see it go. Glad it happened. Glad to see it go. Glad I'm still here to tell the tale. Um, this year, my holiday season culminated with, um, the band that I've been in since about the year 1993, a punk rock band called the Invalids. And the Invalids' prime years were probably, like I said, started in 93 and probably went till about, gosh, 95, maybe 96. Um, so a pretty short window of time for um, the band's active lifespan. But during that time, the band put out a... Um, seven-inch extended play EP record, uh, vinyl record, um, on a record label called Lookout Records, which was based out of uh, Berkeley in California. And um, Lookout Records' main claim to fame, among some others, but the the one that most people would be familiar with, is it was the record label that the band, um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, band Green Day started out of. They began their career on Lookout Records, and we also were very minorly on Lookout Records. And by nature of the whole Green Day phenomenon, pretty much anyone who ever put out something on Lookout um, during the course of their existence as a band um, kind of uh, managed to exist in um, posterity more than just the uh, your average garage band of similar quality, but without that um, uh, Lookout platform. Uh, would be able to do. So um, the band was not around for that long, um, but people still remember the band to this day, and because of that, the band has gotten back together, the proverbial getting back together of the band, um, quite a few times over the years. We actually recorded a new record back in 2009 uh, with some new members. It's still me and the original drummer, Sean. But um, the long and short of the story is that... um, Every every so often, every X number of years, something will happen to get us back together. And every time it happens, once it kind of uh, comes to an end, I figure that's that's that for the band. You know, that was the, finally the final chapter of the Invalids. And sure enough, a couple years later, something brings us back yet again. So I figure this will kind of keep on happening until it no longer does. But anyway, this year uh, there was a big event down in the East Bay of Northern California. Um, Actually, it's funny because when I first heard about this, I figured it was a guy my age, like an old 40-year-old guy that had put this together, but really it was like a young college kid. I think he was like 19 or something from what I hear. A guy named Alex um, put together this event called the Lookouting. And the Lookouting was like a week-long kind of festival where bands that had been involved with the Lookout record label back in the late 90s um, did uh, a bunch of reunion shows at this punk venue in Berkeley called Gilman Street, which was kind of the epicenter for all of the the punk music that was going on in the East Bay back in the 90s. And we didn't play in the main portion of the festival. We didn't play on either of the big weekends, and we did not play at Gilman Street. We, in true invalid style, because we were always kind of on the outside looking into the whole lookout thing, that's uh, where we like to be. You know, we're, we're lone wolves, we're, we're loners, dotty, we're rebels. Um, but we ended up playing on a Monday night, January 2nd, the Monday after uh, New Year's Day. Monday night at a little bar called the Ivy Room in Albany, California, which is down there in the East Bay, kind of near Berkeley and everything. And, um, we spent the holiday season having a few practices leading up to this show and, um, 
some went okay, some were not so great. So by the time the show came to pass, I was a bit nervous. I, I, I don't normally get nervous when we play shows, but I was a little nervous this time around. It had been a couple years since we'd played together before. And uh, I was kind of concerned, you know, Monday night, there's going to be like two people there and uh, we're going to play horribly, etc., etc. Um, and like I said, I'd had holiday social anxiety kind of leading up to this. So it was like, oh, this is just going to be the the pinnacle. All, everything is going to coalesce here and, and all of these bad feelings I've had and all these worries I've had are all going to, this is going to be the big crescendo. But it turns out the show was a lot of fun. Uh, There's nice amount of people there. Some even stuck around. We had to play last. Some some stuck till the bitter end. Some uh, people I hadn't seen in a long time made it out. My brother made it out. Um, we played. From my perspective, we played great. I mean, as great as the invalids are ever going to play. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. And so I guess the moral of the story is, man, forget anxiety. I, what am I worried about? Like, I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, ultimately life is going to lead toward its end. And I guess I could sit around worrying about that. But um, on the path there, man, just chill out. Um, have a good time. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Uh, I don't mean to be on some Pollyanna, like ignoring real problems and stuff. But I mean, I just uh, that, that this whole last holiday season was a nice lesson for me to live a little less inside my head, um, worried about things and God, I hate to say it because, like I said, I, I much like I don't like the whole self help body image thing. I'm not in. I'm not into the the self help scene in general, so I don't want to say it. But man, live in the moment. That's what we've got. That's where we are. Um, uh, just be where you are. Be with the people you're with. Uh, and man, it all seems to work out in the end. So uh, with that kind of new age mumbo jumbo out of the way and that look back at the holiday season, we can segue into the show proper here on episode three of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. And as part of that segue, I would just like to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way so it doesn't get buried at the very end after everyone has already bailed out and stopped listening. I would just like to say once again that the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast is brought to you by way of the IC Robots Radio Network. That is IC Robots as in I look at them. I, I see robots, not IC Robots. But uh, IC Robots Radio Network, home of the Toys R Us report and many other quality shows. For more information uh, head on over to the IC Robots page over on Facebook. Um, over there, IC Robots himself is constantly uh, updating the page with new content, uh, pictures of cool things he's found in his travels, uh, links to uh, great stuff. So uh, go on over there, give that page a like, and join in on the fun. Uh, you can check out icrobots.com for more information as well. And while you're at it, Visit supportthereport.com. IC Robots Radio is a listener-funded enterprise. We need your help to keep the lights on. So for as little as $1 a month, you can help support IC Robots Radio and its wonderful family of shows. And with that said, if you'd like to stay in touch with me, 
Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, you can visit my site at genovega.wordpress.com. If you head over there, I basically have been using that site lately to post links for these shows, but also to include show notes and additional materials for each episode, pictures, links, that kind of thing. So if you would like to check that out, that is genovega.wordpress.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at sensationalvega. And uh, you can also send me a friend request over on Facebook. You can find a link to my Facebook page on the genovega.wordpress.com site. Um, Any and all friend requests accepted. Just uh, brace yourself that if you friend request me and you keep me on your feed, you're going to be stuck seeing a lot of links to Japanese professional wrestling and other annoying things like that. But moving right along, it is time to get down to brass tacks, get down to business here today on episode three of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast. And originally, this episode was going to be part one of a two-part series, and it still is. It's just uh, after some further consideration, part two is going to be kicked on down the road a bit, but we are going to maintain with part one here today. Today's episode is going to be a look at my history in music, not my history in playing music. That's going to be part two at a later date. This is going to be about my history as a fan of music, which is kind of funny because I barely listen to music anymore. Um, But uh, music did at one point in time, and we're talking popular indie punk rock music, not like serious classical music or, or anything like that, but, you know, pop culture music. Um... It did at one point play a very big and very formative uh, part in the life of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, and that is what I would like to focus on and look at today. If you would like to come along with me for the ride, um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get into the heart of things here on Episode 3 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Turn it on! Leave it on! I'm out! I want my MTV. All right. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. 24 hours a day on cable TV. I want my MTV, MTV, MTV. Yeah, too much is never enough. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. And if you are still out there, thanks for sticking around on this third episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. As I mentioned on the opening, uh, this episode is going to look at my history as a fan of various forms of popular music. So let's uh, get started here. Um, We're going to take it on back to what you just heard on the break. You heard some sounds from the early days of MTV music television. You also heard a little bit of Twisted Sisters song, We're Not Gonna Take It, off their iconic Stay Hungry album. I should know what year that was from. I 
don't off the top of my head, and I don't have anything open to look it up at the moment, but yeah, it came out sometime in the 80s. So basically, um, I... As I've chronicled on this show in previous episodes, you know, I I started my life uh, in San Francisco, California, and then at the age of five, moved to a very small town called Atascadero, California. And in Atascadero, um, it being a small town in the 80s, um, most of the teenage males in that town were kind of into the sort of mullety hairstyles, um, either mullets or like longish hair with uh, feathered on the side, kind of like the bad guy in Karate Kid look. Um, and uh, BMX bikes were popular. Um, and along with all that, um, heavy metal, and in particular kind of uh, hair metal, um, but sort of the, not not necessarily, because I don't even know if it had gotten to this level yet at that point, but not necessarily the full-on, like, um, poison, uh, glam hair metal, but more the sort of party anthem, quiet riot, uh, hair metal. Um, although the guy from quiet riot never did have a lot of hair. I I think he has extensions now, actually. I think he has more hair now than he did, uh, uh, back in his, uh, glory days, but whatever, uh, was the guy's name, Kevin Debro, Keith Debro, something like that. Anyhow, um, that kind of music was big and that look and, and all that, was big with the older siblings, older male siblings of a lot of the kids that I went to school with in Atascadero uh, when I was like in first and second grade. And I think I was kind of aware of this, kind of out of the corner of my eye. Um, I would see these older kids and I kind of knew there was a particular look and, and maybe associated it with the music at that point, but it hadn't quite become clear for me yet. I was raised, it was weird in my household, we were kind of in a pop culture vacuum and I'm not sure exactly why, Um, You know, it's not like we were Amish or anything, um, but my parents, um, their particular pop culture tastes were very kind of 60s pop hippie. Um, So, you know, they liked like Crosby, Stills and Nash and uh, uh, Paul Simon and uh, Peter, Paul and Mary and like that kind of music and never really evolved past that. Um, So... I mean, not that I would be expecting my parents to be listening to Quiet Riot, but in our household, we just weren't really that plugged into popular culture. We didn't go out to see a lot of movies. We don't watch a whole lot of TV. We watched like the Cosby show and Family Ties, and that was about it. Um, I'd have to wait till, you know, we had a babysitter or other nefarious means to, to get my pop culture television fix. So I, I always felt like I was a little bit naive about all this stuff, a little bit in a bubble. Um, so I was always very interested in when I would see other groups of people sporting different um, popular culture looks or um, uh, wearing their popular culture interests on their sleeves. I was always very taken with this. So I definitely noticed the kind of the older mullet dudes. I knew something was up with this. I knew they all had a certain look and there, there was something uniform going on there. Um, but I didn't quite have my finger on it yet or understand why it was appealing to me until, um, at some point, um, back then. And, uh, it's funny cause you know, I think that this coincides, I talked on the very first episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast of what a big impression He-Man action figures made on me. And I believe this trip coincides with my birthday. It was probably when I was turning six. Because uh, I think it was the birthday, um, I, I, my birthday's in the summer, so I was always one uh, age for whatever uh, grade in school I was in. So like in kindergarten, I was five all year. And then in first grade, I was six all year. And I think this was the birthday in August um, when I was turning six and moving from kindergarten to first grade. 
Um, and it was a birthday that stands out in my memory because I got a ton of He-Man toys from both my parents and um, my extended relatives on my mom's side of the family that year. And for some reason, I, I, we were taking uh, – my mom's family is mostly like her parents um, and her sister based out of San Francisco. Um, and then her brother, one of her brothers lives down in L.A., and I think her other brother might have even been in L.A. at this time. So Atascadero was kind of in between San Francisco and L.A. So I think what happened was uh, the San Francisco relatives came down to our house in Atascadero. I had kind of like a little birthday party present uh, opening deal. So I had all these He-Man toys. And then very early the next morning, like when it was still dark outside, we all drove down, kind of caravan down to Los Angeles to visit my mom's brother, Anthony, my uncle Anthony. So now not to get just way off track here, but um, I'm just going to give you a little bit of uh, brief background uh, information about my mom's side of the family. Um, I'm sure this will come up on future episodes anyway. But um, my mom's family, they're basically Chinese. Um, but they're like weird Chinese people. They're not like they don't they're they're not like normal, easily traceable um, from China Chinese people. Um, my grandpa, um, my mom's dad, his name was Chester Bush, which is not exactly a Chinese name. He grew up in Shanghai, which is also kind of a weird place in China. It's like a big, kind of westernized city. Um, and at some point in his family, some white dude from, uh, I think we found some records, like he was operating out of the port of Oakland, uh, some sort of merchant type dude, um, married into that family, hence the Bush name. Um, but you know, they lived in China. Everyone else in the family was Chinese. Then my, um, mom's mom, my grandma, who's still alive to this day, she's about like 91, I think still lives in San Francisco. Her name, uh, Mary Bush, Mary, M-E-R-R-Y. Um, <laughs> it's a very, uh, <laughs> very uh, Asian anglicized name there. Um, she, um, her family was from Hong Kong, which is also kind of a weird place in China, especially back then. It was much more westernized than a lot of the other parts of China. Um, but she, I think, would like split time between Hong Kong, but then also Canada, because I think a lot of her family lived in Canada. Um So anyway, her and my grandfather met on a boat coming to the United States um, at the end of World War II. Um, So anyway, that family lineage has always been a total muddled mess because it's like not they don't really openly talk about their history all that much. And then, you know, the the Bush last name is like weird because that's like not a Chinese name. But then they are Chinese, but then they're not. Um, and then my mom was raised, like she doesn't speak the language at all. You know, she was raised only speaking English. Um, but she is like the first generation child of, uh, immigrants, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And then me, you know, I'm, she's her. And then my dad's like this white guy from Los Angeles. So growing up, it was always weird for me because my mom's family was definitely the dominant, um, family. Like we saw her family a lot more than my dad's family. Um, so, you know, I, we'd go down to San Francisco and I, we'd go out to, you know, Chinese restaurants were very different than what most people would experience at the time. And uh, I was around all this Chinese culture, but I wasn't really part of it. You know, I didn't really know a lot about it, um, but it definitely had an influence on me. I definitely, the, the Asian thing was a big factor on me. But then growing up in Santa Rosa, people would be like, you're not Asian, you're white. What's wrong with you? Your name's Scott Morris. But then I'd also get made fun of for being Chinese. I don't know, very bizarre background. Um, I basically feel like a stranger in a strange land at, at all times, um, which has its pros and its cons. I I wouldn't trade it for anything. I kind of like, uh, as I said earlier, just like how our band, the invalids was always on the outside looking in. So too, uh, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, you know, he's a loner Dottie, he's a rebel and, uh, the weird being in 
different worlds and not really a part of any of them as part of all that. What any of this has anything to do with uh, my history is in being a fan of music? Uh, absolutely nothing. But anyway, just seemed apropos to uh, what we're talking about here. So my uncle Tony Bush, who's a Chinese gentleman, but his name's Tony Bush, uh, he um, lives down in Los Angeles, lives down there still to this day, um, lived down there in the 80s when we went on this family trip. And um, I don't really know him very well. I don't think I've seen him in probably like 20 plus years. Um, I think the last time I saw him was at my mom's sister's wedding. I was a teenager at the time. I'd snuck out to smoke a cigarette. I was I was new to cigarette smoking at the time. Um, don't smoke anymore, of course, and don't smoke kids. But at, at the time, you know, it was, the, it was the 90s and smoking was cool, you know, <laughs> so... I went out to smoke a cigarette and I ran into him and I freaked out. I thought I was going to get busted, but uh, he was out there smoking a cigarette too. So go Uncle Tony. Anyway, Tony lived down in LA and um, his gimmick was that he was an early adopter um, early in on the health food scene. And he had a chain of health food stores in Los Angeles. So we went down to visit him and we did this a couple of times when I was a kid. Um, I think eventually there was some family drama, some falling out. I think he married married a woman that didn't get along with the rest of the family, something. I don't know. At this point, though, we still would occasionally go down uh, with everyone to visit him. And um, it's funny because as little as I know him and as long as it's been since I've seen him, two of those visits in particular were very formative uh, for my life. Uh, one I'll probably talk about on another episode. Um, he gifted me my first video game console, uh, one of those, the Sears version of the Atari 2600, but that, that's another story for another day. On this particular visit, his daughter Jennifer uh, was with him. He wasn't married to Jennifer's mom, so she wasn't always there on visits, but on this particular one, she was around. Jennifer was my age. She's my cousin. And um, Jennifer, on this particular visit when I was about six, and she would have been around the same age, had become very enamored with this new uh, cable television channel that they were able to get at Tony's house, um, which we didn't have um, back in Atascadero. We didn't even have, at the time, we certainly didn't have extended cable in Atascadero. We had, you know, just like the local network channels or whatever, um, whatever came in over the air. But um, this channel, MTV, music television. And um, so I showed up in Los Angeles. I remember some palm trees in front of their house. I remember kind of walking in and I remember just kind of like going with Jennifer to start watching TV. And that's pretty much what I did the entire time was just sit there glued in front of this music television. And at first, um, the allure was simply the fact that, um, Hey, we're watching TV. Cool. Um, and I, you know, I remember seeing just some kind of, I don't even remember the specifics of what it was now, but just some kind of basic 80s MTV stuff, people in bright clothing jumping around on like light up piano keys or something, I don't know. But um, the game was changed entirely when about 30 minutes into watching MTV, the Twisted Sister We're Not Gonna Take It video came on screen. And this video upon first viewing really just blew my mind. Um, if you haven't seen this video um, and you're listening to this, you should probably just pause this for a second and just give it a quick view on YouTube. Um, I'll have it linked to over on the genovega.wordpress.com site. But um, in any case, this video, um, you know, it starts off with this kid. He's eating dinner with this miserable, grotesque-looking family, and he asks to be excused. And uh, he goes up to his room, and he's playing his electric guitar, and his dad hears this and becomes furious. 
and goes up to the room and starts berating him and making fun of his twisted sister merch. And finally, the dad demands to know what the kid wants to do with his life, and the kid simply replies that he wants to rock. And at this point, um, I think he strums his guitar and blows the dad out through the window and then uh, spins around, and much like if you guys remember the uh, uh, Power Lord's action figure, the way Adam Power would kind of swivel around at the waist and turn it into Power Lord, which we'll talk about on a future episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, the kid turns into the lead singer, the front man of Twisted Sister, D. Schneider. And I had my first look at D. Schneider, and D. Schneider, man, this guy, he was like, it, it was basically it had the same effect on me that professional wrestlers did. I mean, here... This kid had just transformed into this real-life comic book character. And then uh, Dee proceeds to get into it with the dad, who continues to try to get back into the house for the course of the video, and and we hear the great, rousing anthem, we're not going to take it. And in that moment, uh, just uh, I, too, realized... I wanted to rock like my my uh, life had been kind of muddled and unclear at the time leading up to it. But that video just really clarified everything for me. And it's like, you know what? Every day of my life, my parents weren't belligerent and uh, abusive in the in the sense of the way that the, the dad was in that video. But still, every day I, I would see grotesque adults yelling at people and uh, bossing people around and just social injustice against kids as far as the eye could see. But but there was hope. We could stand up for ourselves. We could rock. And like I said earlier, I, I then spent the rest of that visit just fixated on MTV, hoping that that Twisted Sister video would play again. And I think it did a couple times. And each time, it just like drew me in further and further. Um, and I guess I'd like to say um, just an honorable mention, runners up as far as uh, formative videos that made a huge impression on me on that first viewing. I'd have to say second place would go to the video The Warrior, um, song by the band Scandal featuring Patti Smith or Patti Smythe. I'm not sure how you say that. Not to be confused with the more famous Patti Smith. This one was the one-hit wonder 80s Patti Smith, who personally I like better. But anyway, um, yeah, this is that song. Um, Shooting down the walls of heartache. Bang, bang. I am the warrior. If you remember that tune, great tune. Uh, <laughs> probably didn't do justice there, but whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, the video for that one, man, um, if you haven't seen that, check that out as well. Um, that was some weird, like, at the time, just mind-blowing, post-apocalyptic sci-fi ballet dancer battle uh, thing going on. There was this, like, Edward Scissorhands-looking guy with claws fighting these, like, kind of membrane-ish creatures. And then finally, once they were all gone, him and Patty Smith, they had their own fight. And I think there might have even been, like, a weird mutant ref. And you know how I feel about uh, combat sports. So I, I just, this one also freaked me the hell out, but also captivated my imagination. Um, and then last but not least video that I just really dug, um, uh, from that visit and my first viewings of MTV was, uh, the iconic, uh, Tina Turner number, what's love got to do with it. And that video where she's just kind of like walking around town, busting a jean jacket, you know, like kicking back against a chain link fence and just like, yeah, Tina, you go, girl. Like, I don't even think that term was in the popular uh, parlance at the time, but I, I was thinking whatever the equivalent was at the time. You know, what does love have to do with it? You tell him. And uh, so just this general feeling of rebelliousness that I got from watching MTV, um, that coupled with um, the types of songs that were standing out to me, which were all kind of these, like, uh, um, over-the-top, gaudy, anthemic uh, songs of rebellion. And that, that, that's what became the foundation for what I enjoyed in music 
as a child and what I still enjoy in music today. And that trip came to an end, and I don't really remember anything else from it other than the MTV viewing, though that was more than enough to remember. Um, we went back to Atascadero where there was no MTV, but I did have those memories and those memories were going to play a big part in setting my course for the coming years. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about my life as a fan of popular music on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots radio network. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. MTV. Music television. Video music. 24 hours a day. And it's stereo. Call your cable company and say, I want my MTV. Now return to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the ICU Robots Radio Network. And welcome back once again to episode three of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Thanks for sticking around. We're back, and we're going to keep on talking about my history as a fan of popular music growing up. Uh, When we left, I had just finished telling you about my introduction to MTV when uh, down in Los Angeles, California, visiting my uncle Anthony and my cousin Jennifer. So now we're going to take it to where um, I had gotten back home to Atascadero, California. I now had MTV on my mind, though I did not have access to it. I don't think we actually had MTV in our home till um, I think till after we'd moved from Atascadero to um, Santa Rosa, California, a few years later. Um, like I think I said earlier, we only had just regular over-the-air network television at this stage in my life. I think at a certain point, a cable box appeared while we were in Atascadero, but the deal with that, it was mainly... Um, it was this uh, box with a big dial, and I remember it picked up HBO, and... Um, Maybe got CNN, because I think I remember my dad watching that. But basically, um, we went in uh, on it with our neighbors. Um, You know, it was like a monthly subscription box. And uh, they would have it one week. We'd have it one week. And I would use it to watch watch Fraggle Rock a lot on there on HBO. And I watched the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory movie about 80 times in a row. But I don't remember MTV being on that box. And in fact, that box might have been around before I saw MTV. I don't know. One way or the other. That's all kind of a blur, but I did not have MTV in a Tascadero that I can remember. But like I said, it was on my mind. And when I got back and when I got back to school and I started looking around, I started to piece together the fact that those teenage boys that I'd mentioned earlier with the mullets and the feathered hair and the the jean jacket vests and uh, BMX bikes, I was like, oh, so these guys are into like Twisted Sister and that kind of stuff. That's what this look is all about. And so there was a kid in my class. His name was Scott. Uh, as yeah, My name's Scott. His name was Scott. His last name started with M-A. My last name starts with M-O. So we were always um, lined up together because the teachers would always line us up uh, alphabetically by last name. 
And uh, we had to sign our papers to our schoolwork because most kids would just use their first name if there wasn't another uh, kid with their first name in the class. But um, if there was, you use your first initial. But in our case, we had the same first initial. So I was always Scott M.O. He was Scott M.A. So Scott M.A., I had noticed, um, often wore a T-shirt to school that said heavy metal on it. Now, I remember um, it was spelled, the heavy was spelled standard English spelling of the word heavy. Metal was spelled M-E-A-T-E-L. And I think our teacher pointed that out to him one day that his T-shirt was misspelled. And he was like, uh, no, this is a kind of music. And that's how you spell it. It's like you spell it like heavy metal, but it's heavy metal. Um, and I totally took his word on that one. Uh, in retrospect, it was probably just some weird knockoff import shirt that wasn't spelled right. But So I had him pegged to someone that kind of knew about this world. And um, I asked him about it. And sure enough, he had an older brother, which is where he got all of his intel. So he was one of those kind of kids who's always like, you know, my brother says X, my brother says Y. And I kind of started to pick up on this, but the X's and Y's that his brother was telling him were all about things I wanted to know. So um, I kind of started hanging around him more and, um, you know, oh, you don't say. So your brother does say, say X, huh? Well, tell me more about Y. And um, so in this way, I kind of started to get the lay of the land about heavy metal music. Now, his brother, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. I, um, I don't know that I ever actually saw this individual in person, though I do have a vague mental image of him. So maybe I did, but maybe I created this image uh, in my mind. But... The best way I can describe it is um, if you've ever seen that show, My So-Called Life, I'm not super familiar with that show. I've only seen bits and pieces here and there. But one thing that I noticed on the episodes that I've seen that they seem to have really nailed on that show is if I understand correctly on that show, there's a character and I think his name is like Tino or something like that. And um, he's maybe older than the characters on the show. And he's often cited as an authority on things or like, you know, he can get you maybe like drugs or alcohol or he can get you tickets to a concert. Or he said this about that subject. He said that about this subject. And he's kind of this influential figure, but I don't think that you ever actually see him on camera. And that is, um, precisely what Scott M.A.'s brother was like. Um, like I said, I have a mental image of him in my mind. He basically looks like, the 80s professional wrestler Terry Bam Bam Gordy, who was a member of the Fabulous Freebirds, kind of a big burly dude with long curly hair. But again, I don't know if I'm just making that up or if I ever did. I think I might have encountered the guy in passing once at their house because that's the other vague memory I have. It's not like I ruled deep with Scott M.A., but I think I must have somehow gotten to his house once because I remember going through his brother's records with him. And so this is how I started to get a window into the fact that not only did Twisted Sister rule, but there were all these other amazing bands out there too in a similar vein. And so um, I want to look this up really quick here. Um, I should have had this up ahead of time. Please excuse me, but I'm looking up the Twisted Sister discography because this was a key thing um, in hanging out with Scott M.A., um, where I realized that I had only been um, scraping the surface so far um, by seeing that Twisted Sister video of all this music I could delve into here. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, I had told him how impressed I was by We're Not Gonna Take It, and he was like, um, yeah, 
that uh, song's pretty cool. My brother says that's pretty cool, but uh, my brother says that the, the, their best album was Under the Blade. Under the Blade, that's the best. And I, I'm looking here, and that was their first record. That one came out in 82. Stay Hungry was 84. But yeah, so I realized, oh, so when you really get into this stuff, you know, there's the stuff um, on the surface that everyone sees, but then there's like, you know, for the for uh, uh, the smart fans, you know, for the, those in the know, you get even deeper, and there's those deeper cuts. I mean, I didn't call them deeper cuts. I think that's the, an industry term, but, you know. Um, so, you know, I sat at the learning tree of Scott M.A. Um, vis-a-vis his brother, and I he taught me about um, the band Rat, the band Quiet Riot, um, and the band that really ended up standing above all others for me at that time, which was the band Motley Crue. And um, I thought Twisted Sister had melted my face and changed my life, um, but that was nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to listening to Motley Crue for the first time and then somehow seeing some of their videos. I don't know if like maybe I saw them at Scott's house. Somehow I did see, um, I saw the Looks That Kill video. And for me, that video was like my experience with the We're Not Gonna Take It video uh, times a thousand. I mean, first of all, the song was a million times cooler. Um, not that We're Not Gonna Take It isn't one of the coolest songs ever, but Twisted Sister, looking back, and even then I could tell that they were always a little on the iffier side um, as far as their musical output than some of the other bands of their ilk. They were a little more smoke and mirrors uh show busy. I mean, all those, all those glam bands, hair metal bands are smoke and mirrors, but they were really extreme smoke and mirrors. I mean, um, with Motley Crue, uh, I can make the same criticism for some of their output as well, but their early stuff and like looks at kill that just, that's like a tough, mean pop metal song. And, um, so that video, um, I just watched it the other day for the first time in years. And man, the things that people that were socially acceptable in the 80s, it's its really funny looking back now because video is actually kind of creepy. And I mean, it was creepy to me as a kid, but in a different way. But it's basically they are the band, the four members of Motley Crue are rounding up a bunch of women and putting them in a cage and then um, basically forcing them to listen to their horrible music. Um, and then this somehow summons this sort of Amazonian alpha woman who comes down, and then um, uh, the lead singer, Vince Neil, basically uh, sort of attempts to, like, date rape her. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a weird scene, man. It was the 80s. I don't know. But um, but but seeing these kind of images um, when I was, like, six or seven, it was, it was powerful stuff. I mean, I... First of all, the look of that band, just these tall, lanky guys that uh, with all their their weird, savage makeup and uh, uh, kind of D&D outfits, I barely even looked human to me. They were, they were like another type of creature, like these alien beings. Um, and because they're acting so antisocial in that video and like uh, terror, terrorizing these women and stuff, it was like, um, you know, a lot of the other artists that were being presented at that time... Um, it was more like, oh, this is your buddy, this is your friend, you know, wham, um, uh, groups like that. The pop groups were all kind of smiley, happy. These guys, these were like bad guys. <laughs> they were they were straight up heels, as you'd call them in professional wrestling. And that was very intriguing to me. Um, the idea that you would be being entertained by these people who weren't even necessarily good people. And um, I think part of why that was so powerful to me is I, I was a total goody two shoes as a kid. I was afraid of my own shadow. 
So to see these kind of antisocial, um, almost like uh, uh, unlawful, practically amoral uh, um, characters just rocking out, um, it, it called to something inside of me. And I don't mean that like then, you know, a lot of times people have this bizarre misconception that if, if something like that connects with you on an aesthetic level, then that means that you want to like then go out and be some horrible person. But that, that's not about that. It's just something about those images and at my age and who I was, um, it made me feel like, um, you know, maybe it's okay to be a little bit reckless sometimes. Um, maybe there's a part of me that wants to be like that. Um, you know, not in the same way, but just, you know, uh, artistically speaking. But then the plot thickened for me with Motley Crue because after I saw the Looks That Kill video, um, sometime after that, I then saw the Too Young To Fall In Love video. And in Too Young To Fall In Love, suddenly these guys have made a switch. They've made what you'd call in wrestling uh, a babyface turn. They went from being heels to babyfaces, bad guys to good guys. Because Too Young To Fall In Love is this bizarre kind of Blade Runnery looking post-apocalyptic Asian throwback yet at the same time sci-fi video where it's like this little uh, kid, this little girl is like struggling on the streets and she gets taken in by these creepy dudes and it's like it's, looks to be some child human trafficking ring but there's this other little little guy on the street and he sees this thing and he very solemnly goes and snitches to Motley Crue and the members of Motley Crue go and they uh, infiltrate the uh, headquarters of this ring and uh, have a martial arts fight with them and save the kids and uh, um, Tommy Lee even, even snags a bowl of rice on the way out and eats it. And uh, so this video was a change of tone because now here are these guys, you want to you shake their hand. Suddenly these are some squeaky clean uh, Boy Scouts in uh, makeup and uh, spikes. Um, but that just added to the complexity f- to me because it's like, oh, I thought these guys were jerks. But now here they're helping the kids. And, uh, and it brought me back to we're not going to take it because remember, you know, the, like I said, that appealed to me because of all the crap that I would see happen to kids in my life. Um, here again is there's this theme, you know, uh, the kids have a way to fight back. We can rock. And um, so I, th- I developed this whole mythology in my mind about who Motley Crue were and what was going on. And basically, I had put together this idea that they were essentially these demonic creatures. Because um, Looks at Kill 2 had all the pentagram imagery. And then, like, you know, I listened to the, the record um, at Scott M.A.'s house, you know, Shout at the Devil. So I, my idea was that they were these, these uh, demons that had somehow been summoned uh, into our world. But while upon their original conjuring were brought here um, with uh, malevolent uh, intentions in mind, they somehow in our world had broke free from that programming and now we're out trying to do good. So (laughs) that's probably more thought than anyone's given Motley Crue and their moral compass um, to date, but that was my deal uh, back in 1984 or whatever. So the last thing to just put a little bookend on that Motley Crue uh, tangent there. Um, and again, the thing that's funny, look, thinking back about all of this at this point in time, when I was about six or seven, first and second grade, um, I didn't own any of this music. I would listen to it, you know, and not even, it's not even like I listened to it a lot with these kids like Scott M.A. or anything. I, I really would hear these songs maybe once, but then, you know, they just imprinted themselves on me. Um, but somehow in trafficking with Scott, I ended up with a double-sided kind of pull-out poster from a circus magazine. Circus was a kind of a heavy metal, hard rock magazine. Um, 
and uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was circus. But anyway, um, it was this double-sided poster, and it had um, a picture of Nikki Six, the bass player from Motley Crue, on one side, and he was on stage playing bass. And then it had a picture of Vince Neil on the other side, the singer. But the Vince Neil side, that's the side that's the side that I wanted to display in my room. But on the Vince Neil side, it said something like, you know, Vince Neil, metal's newest sex symbol or something like that. And I didn't really know what sex meant at the time, but I took that to be some sort of bad word. So basically, I hung up this poster in my room, and any time my parents or any other adults were around, I'd flip it around to the Nikki Six side, but as soon as they were gone, flip it back to Vince Neil. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, just my, my starting off my rock and roll rebellion at home right there. Um, and so, like I said, you know, I it, it was very taken with that kind of early 80s um, hair metal scene, very taken with what little scraps I could get from the table of Scott M.A. Um, couldn't really take it much further than that at the time because, like I said, I mean, it, music was a lot harder to come by back then than it is now, and I didn't even know how to go about getting it even if I wanted to. Um, but I, I tried my best to to represent metal. Uh, I remember... Um, Either I think it was second grade by that point. I um, wanted to be D. Schneider for Halloween. <laughs> I was trying to describe to my parents what I wanted to be, and they just had no idea what I was talking about. And I was telling this story to someone the other day, and they were like, oh, that's a bummer because nowadays you could just go online and show them a picture. But I was like, yeah, I want to be this guy D. Schneider. He's a singer for Twisted Sister. Uh, he wears makeup. And they're like, well, what kind of makeup? You know, makeup. Like he has this makeup on his cheeks. And they're like, oh, you mean like rouge? And I was like, eh, not really. So that, that got lost in translation. So I was not D. Schneider for Halloween. I think I was a Ghostbuster for Halloween um, that year. Another story for another time. That was actually one of my, one of my best uh, Halloween costumes. So I got to give props to my parents for the, for the help with that. But we'll talk about that another time. Um, so really, the, the best I could do was to just start um, any kind of uh, language arts assignment we would have in school that had to do with writing about anything or anything that had to do with drawing pictures. I would just write about how much I loved heavy metal, how my life was dedicated to heavy metal. And I would draw these really bad stick figures of like two long lines coming out of each side of their head because I was supposed to be the hair. <laughs> And eventually, because um, I think that guy Scott M.A. did that a lot too, maybe a couple other kids, the teacher decreed, uh, we had to write something. I think we had to write something for Thanksgiving. We had to write like something that we were thankful for, and she said it couldn't be about heavy metal. Um, so I circumvented that by writing about how thankful I was for electric guitars <laughs> because what did I want to do with my life? I wanted to rock. And as I'm looking at the clock here on this episode of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, we are just about to hit the 50 minute mark. <laughs> I originally thought this was going to be a one episode about my entire uh, chronology of uh, youth uh, music fandom, and there is just no way that's going to happen. I'm really opposed to having this show, any particular episode of this show, go longer than 60 minutes because I can't imagine anyone listening for, for longer than that, much less that long. Um, so, what I'm going to do. I'm just going to I'm going to say a few last words here and then we're just going to keep going on this theme maybe next episode maybe even the episode after that um because you know I'm not I, I'm all over the place it's not like I'm going to stick strictly with music anyway and other stuff's going to come up but but generally speaking I'm going to plan on um keeping with this theme for the next episode or two uh riding it out to its end 
Um, originally, I was going to very um, linearly go through, first, I like this music, then I like that music, but that's going to be hard to pull off the way things are going here. So I'm going to say a few closing words, um, and some of this will get revisited as we go along um, because it wasn't entirely from point A to point B, um, how I, my interest in this type of metal, that 80s hair metal. Um, but I just want to say, you know, it was the music that got me into music. Um, I kind of fell out from it eventually because other forms of popular music uh, caught my fancy, but it was always there in the background and it was always there with me. And I maintained my affinity for hair metal even after we moved to uh, Santa Rosa in about 1986 when I was in fourth grade. Um, All the way through about sixth grade, I was pretty, uh, I wouldn't say, it wasn't like the only kind of music I listened to, but I was always down for some, some hair slash glam metal. Uh, loved Poison, loved White Snake. Um, Here I Go Again is like one of the best songs of all time as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with how much I associate uh, those songs, that look, that sound with that formative part of my life and with the, the memories both bad and good I have from back then. It just uh, uh, really evokes something for me. It, I, I identified it strongly with life in general back then, and I identify it strongly with memories of that life now. I'm always so mystified why so many people of my age group are so down on hair metal. It's like you didn't like it when you were a kid. You don't. You can't still think back to what about it appealed to you then. And mo- most of the um, criticisms that I hear it get are part of exactly why I l- still claim it to this day. I feel that popular music at a certain point just became way, way, way too serious and way too full of itself. Back then, back when I was a kid, you know, um, all the music, it didn't matter whether it was hair metal, whether it was straight up pop music, whether it was like rap music, which we now call hip hop music, the, the characters performing that music were all larger than life. They were entertainers. They weren't just themselves up on a stage. They were a character. Dee Schneider was character. Vince Neil and the rest of Motley Crue, those were characters. And I mean, it, much like uh, with professional wrestling, which I'm also a huge fan of, it, it's not like they're such characters that they don't have any of the performer themselves in them, but the performer is purposely uh, projecting him or herself as something larger than life on that stage. And that's what I want to see. I don't, I don't want to see some... Uh, boring, um, normal dude um, who's uh, buying into his own hype up there playing boring music. I want, I want larger than life characters. I want stories, you know, and I want something I can sink my teeth into. And hair metal always provided that for me. And, um, and, and the part of the fact that it was ridiculous and stupid, that's what was so fun about it. It was fun. That was the thing. It was good times. Um, not everything has to be fun and good times, but why would you hate on something that's fun and good times? These guys weren't going out there trying to claim that they were, uh, you know, coming straight out of the school of Juilliard music, producing like the greatest uh, auditory experience you were ever going to hear in your life. They were just, it was, it was something to like, you know, drink some beers and sing along to and raise your fist and have a good time, party anthems. So, um, you know, hair metal, yeah. I don't know. I just, I just feel like uh, it's like there's a scene in that movie, uh, The Wrestler, with Mickey Rourke, where uh, him and I, it's Marissa Tomei, right? They're uh, they're in a bar, and uh, Guns N' Roses, Sweet Child of Mine comes on. And Guns N' Roses, I, I think it's very unfair to call them a hair metal band because they were much more than that, and we'll talk about Guns N' Roses later. But it comes on, and they're they're getting into it, and they're like, this music's fun, man. And, you know, Mickey Rourke's like, yeah, then that 
Kurt Cobain jackass had to come around and ruin it for everyone. And there's a lot of validity to that. And it's funny because I was deeply entrenched in all that 90s alternative music. And I love that, too. But I, I, I don't think it has to be either or. You know, I, I think we could we can appreciate our dour um, '90s ironic uh, descent into hipsterism, but we can also still look back and enjoy the good times that were the 1980s. And with that, I'm going to thank you for listening to this episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network again. You can check out my site at genovega.wordpress.com where I will have show notes for this episode. Uh, you can go to the IC Robots Facebook page where IC Robots himself can indoctrinate you into his world, um, of which this show is just one small part. Um, check out the rest of the shows via the IC Robots Radio Network um, on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcast feeds congregate. And visit supportthereport.com where, again, for as little as $1 a month, you can help support us and our endeavors here at IC Robots Radio Network, trying to bring you some shows that, uh, hey, just, uh, just folks talking about life and their thoughts on it and maybe entertaining you along the way. I hope so. <laughs> Anyway, folks, thanks for listening. Um, We'll be back sooner than later since this kind of ended in the middle of things. Um, Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for letting me be sensational. Thanks for being sensational with me. For the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network, it's Mr. Sensational Gino Vega signing off. This has been a Joseph S. Mama production on the IC Robots Radio Network. Yahar! Yeah,